Liberating Arts seeks to articulate the enduring relevance of a liberal arts education during a time of pandemic and protest. Through our online platform, we will host a series of conversations with writers, academics, institutional leaders, and public intellectuals about the nature of the liberal arts, their formational purpose, and their moral significance in a time of great cultural disruption. We hope to inspire viewers and listeners to learn more about the liberating effects of these arts on their own lives. To find out more, please visit www.theliberatingarts.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, Spotify, or YouTube. Welcome to a webinar with Alan Jacobs and Elizabeth Corey. I'm Paul Guttaker, director of Brazos Fellows. Uh, I also teach as a lecturer in the history department at Baylor University, and it's a pleasure to join uh, two of my Baylor colleagues online for this conversation today in honor of this fantastic book from Alan. Um, our conversation today is hosted by Brazos Fellows, which is a post-college year of study here in Waco, Texas. Uh, really for those who want to break bread with the dead, not to uh, steal from you too heavily, Alan, but it's a, a, a nine-month program uh, for those interested in doing vocational discernment and theological study uh, in a community that shares spiritual disciplines and life together. Um, and I want to also thank Baylor's Honors College for co-sponsoring and a special thanks to Baylor and Washington for generously supporting and co-sponsoring uh, this webinar. And thanks to all of you who took time out of your day to tune in. Uh, before I introduce Alan and Elizabeth, let me just say that we'll have some time at the end of the webinar for your questions. I'm sure there will be many about such an interesting book and topics. So feel free to put those into the chat of the webinar, uh, as well as uh, you can also email them to director at brazosfellows.com. Um, so let me introduce our panelists. Uh, Dr. Elizabeth Corey is the Honors Program Director and Associate Professor of Political Science at Baylor University. She also serves on the Brazos Fellows Advisory Board. And Dr. Ellen Jacobs is Distinguished Professor of Humanities and the Honors Program at Baylor, a resident fellow in Baylor's Institute for the Studies of Religion, and a senior fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies and Culture at the University of Virginia. Um, and, you know, when I look through your books, Alan, I'm reminded of sort of years where, the, you know, those were books that really shaped uh, my thinking, my reading. Uh, we won't list them all, but The Pleasures of Reading in an Age of Distraction, How to Think, A Survival Guide for a World at Odds. And I want to give a special shout out to the students. I know there's a whole class at John Brown University that's actually reading How to Think this semester, and they're tuning in. So uh, welcome to you all. Um, the Year of Our Lord, 1943, and then, of course, um, our topic today, Breaking Bread with the Dead. Um, thanks so much for this work, Alan, for uh, the, the gift that this book is. Um, I'm, I'm excited to talk about it. I mean, my only complaint with this book is that um, terrible year to publish it. I mean, we're not anxious. There's no, you know, distraction. Um, really just not, uh, not good timing. <laughs> Obviously, it's very needed, right? Tranquility, uh, something, uh, something other than the noise we're faced with. So thanks, Alan, so much for that. Uh, and uh, thanks for being uh, willing to talk about it with us. It's great to be here. Elizabeth, I thought I'd let you um, sort of start with uh, your first question. Sure, thank you. <clears throat> thank you to Paul and to the Brazos Fellows and to all the sponsors. 
um, and to Alan for writing the book. Uh, if those of you who don't have the book yet, I would encourage you strongly to buy it, uh, give it to your friends. Uh, Alan's too modest to do that himself, but I would very much encourage you to, to get the book and, and to read it. It's not long. It's wonderfully short. Um, it's wonderfully conversational. Uh, it's really a vision of why humanities education is important without platitudes, without exhortations, without guilt, um, not trying to shame people or make them feel dumb. Um, because I've been reading a lot, I'm on a sabbatical this year, uh, about liberal education, and so much of it is just dull and boring, but this is not that. So it, what I'd like to do, there's so much we could ask um, Alan Jacobs about this book, but I want to begin by uh, asking him kind of a broad question. Um, I was reading yesterday uh, a, an essay by the political philosopher Michael Oakeshott um, that I know Alan will know, it's called The Claims of Politics. And it's a short little essay written by Oakshot, and he makes the claim that everybody has a duty to engage in politics. Um, yeah, he, he's actually arguing against the claim that everybody has to engage in politics in the normal way, that is in activism, in voting and organizing and so on. He says, actually, all of life is really social and political and certain people have a genius uh, that would be squandered if they were to go engage in politics in the normal way. Um, he says, instead, what poets, poets, artists, and philosophers do is actually more important than traditional political activity for it recreates uh, society. It doesn't merely protect it. Uh, those people are attending to the stuff of culture that must be created and recreated continually. Um, the writers, the readers, the movie producers, the people who watch the movies, the teachers and the learners. So Alan, the question is this, your, your book is emphatically not political in the sort of pejorative modern sense. You're definitely not pressing a political view on your readers, as those of us who have read your other works know this is not uh, your normal mode. Yet, there is a political vision, I think, that underlies the book, a kind of capacious political vision. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you might say a little bit more about what you hope to create and recreate in the minds and lives of the readers who read the book. Yeah, I mean, that's a very, that's a very shrewd uh, comment, Elizabeth. I, I think that um, maybe the first thing that I would say in response to that is that uh, people who do politics only in the sense of electoral politics, people who do politics only do politics badly. Um, it is, uh, it's, they are almost certain to uh, fail to achieve any kind of reasonable perspective on the things that they're interested in. I, I was reading a, a, a blog post recently by um, uh, Robin Sloan, who is a wonderful writer, um, and uh, he's actually he's the author of two novels, but he's been writing a video game, <laughs> creating a video game, and he he talks about how when you're putting objects into space in a video game that there are different sorts of projections that you can use in much the same way that, for instance, there are different kinds of map projections. Um, and uh, the uh, a standard way of, of, of putting these images on the screen for a video game is a perspective uh, uh, model. And when you, have a, when you have that, then you can very clearly see which objects are in the foreground and which ones are in the background. And you can see them in kind of three-dimensional relation to one another. But there's another kind of projection, which is 
has its own uses called orthographic projection. And if you set a bunch of objects, let's say geometrical objects, squares and circles and triangles and cubes, I should say, and spheres, and you put them in spinning and space in relation to one another, you can't tell which one is bigger, you can't tell which one is smaller, you can't tell which ones are closer or which ones are farther away. The orthographic projection completely deprives you of all the cues that would tell you what's prominent and what isn't. And Robin says, and this is I think the brilliant point, he says, social media are an orthographic camera. <laughs> they, you get to see everything, but there's nothing there to tell you what matters and what doesn't matter. There's nothing there to tell you what's an essential problem and what's a peripheral, peripheral problem. There's nothing to tell you what's lastingly challenging and what is just a, a momentary difficulty. And that is why I think people who get absorbed in day-to-day political disputations are so bad at it. They don't have any kind of standard of comparison or standard of judgment that would allow them to discern what matters more and what matters less. And this is one of the primary functions of reading old books for me. Reading old books is, it shifts your perspective from an orthographic one to a, a a perspectival one where you can actually see the relationships between ideas and you can see what matters a little more and what matters a little less. And you can do that for a couple of reasons. One is by just getting, stepping away from the things that are obsessing you and, and just calming down a little bit, but also because you can see the echoes of the things that your culture is going through in the past. And in that way, you can kind of have a more settled and more reliable understanding of what's going on around you. And I think that's, that's the main thing that I want. I want people to develop strategies of temporary disconnection that allow them to get some perspective on what's happening. And that also gives them the opportunity to develop some, what is really the major theme of the book, tranquility, a little more of a peaceable spirit. Um, I, I just, I've, I've watched so many people over the last few years get themselves into a, a kind of a positive feedback spiral of, of anger and outrage, and they just can't get out of it, right? Because everything that they see feeds into the story that they're already telling themselves. And if you curate your social media feeds well enough, then you never hear anything that gives a different point of view than the one that you already have. And I'm just trying to find some way to plead with those people to pull back a little bit and to get first a little bit of perspective. And then having gotten that perspective, maybe a little bit of tranquility too. That, that's very helpful. I mean, what's interesting to me is that you, in the book, actually take on a lot of the political issues of the day. You take on the issue of race and you take on the issue of, of sex. Uh, so you talk a lot about women and you talk a lot about the African-American experience in the United States, but you do it in a way that is not say, saying, I'm going to talk now about uh, racism. You're actually using the books to, um, to sort of draw out uh, insights that support your thesis, which they do. Um, do you think that's 
replicable? I mean, do you think other people can talk about race and sex in ways that are kind of fresh and unthreatening? Or is it just, is it just too fraught? I mean, are, are we just yeah. lucky to have your one contribution? Well, I mean, I, I don't see any reason why it couldn't be much more widely done. Um, the, the, the main point that I'm trying to make there is that if you can interact, you know, if instead of thinking about what, what somebody you follow on Twitter or somebody that you're friends with on Facebook is saying about race, if instead you think about what, what Frederick Douglass thought about the, uh, for instance, uh, maybe a more specific example, right? We're, we're seeing people who are wanting to tear down statues of certain prominent figures in the past, including some of the American founders. Well, how did Frederick Douglass, who was born into slavery, think about the American founders? Um, that is, you, you can listen to him. He's not, you know, he's, he died long ago. So he is, he's not threatening to you. He's not going to get in your face. Uh, you can stop reading anytime you want to and, and reflect and think about what he says. It's a kind of a training ground for engaging with your more immediate neighbors. Um, and I take a step even further than that in talking about Peter Abrahams, the great South African-born uh, writer who lived in Jamaica for the second half of his life, and is really an extraordinary writer about his his youth when he was torn between his love of the Harlem Renaissance writers and his love of the English poets, uh, and and you start to see this kind of complex relationship between. Uh, what you have in common with certain people sociologically and culturally and, and perhaps even racially, and then what you might have with other people whom you're disconnected from racially, and yet they are people who touch your heart in some way. This was what Peter Abrahams felt. And, and, and by kind of trying this out, right, you're, 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 these figures in the past allow you to kind of make a trial run at having empathy and responsive engagement with people who are very different than you. And, and the hope would be that if you can make a trial run of that in, uh, in, in your reading, then maybe you can develop just enough patience and forbearance to make your interactions with other people a little more generous and a little more charitable as well. Yeah, I think that's what you were talking about in the um, the, the pronatalists, and I can't remember the other uh, the other part of that relationship. Um, the two people who were very um, very much uh, opposed to each other politically could they ever get right. together? And, right, and right. Found it unlikely, of course. You know. Yeah, I think maybe that's the um, the passage where I'm talking about um, Donna Haraway, uh, who has uh, written about. Um, you know, uh, she calls making generative oddkin, uh, and this idea of 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 creatures who don't have anything in common with one another, nevertheless developing some sort of communication. But she's mainly talking about getting to know pigeons, uh, and um, and my question for her was, well, that's great. I'm so glad you have this this terrific relationship with pigeons, but how are you doing with the person who lives down the street from you who voted for Trump in 2016 and is gonna do it again in 2020, you know? Well, maybe, maybe 
maybe getting to know the pigeons can kind of <laughs> be a, a, a trial run also for, for uh, getting along a little better with your neighbors. But I tend to think that we're going to be better off if we're encountering other human beings. And so I would, I would prefer for this particular task, I, I think I prefer reading to pigeon fancying. That would just be my preference. Alan, let me press this point a little bit though further. Mm -hmm. um, because even, I mean, I even think since the book probably went off to, to press, the last few months has only seen an increase in this sort of sense that we don't have time mm -hmm. to, to slow down, to not be aware, to not mm -hmm. be active. Um, mm -hmm. And I think this is true on, on probably both sides of the political spectrum. But this sort of, um, it's much too urgent, right? Um, the questions, the conflicts facing us are, are too timely. And so, I mean, even, even in the, the summer and early fall, it seems like the sort of general um, tone is um, that, that what you're calling for might be irresponsible. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I mean, I, I've, I've read you enough over the years to know, I have a sense for what you'd say to that, but is there, I mean, is there anything to say to that other than, well, you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's always well, a good time to go read old books, even if, yeah. even if there seems to be the most sort of urgent, you know, the most important election of our lifetime, the most, you know, right. urgent cause of, of the day. Right. Um, one of the things that I started doing about two years ago is, uh, I mean, I, I, I pretty much completely got away from social media, but I also stopped reading daily news. Um, and I've confirmed myself in that habit. Um, I, I read the news on a weekly basis. Um, I, uh, my, my primary source of, of news, or and by primary, I mean the place that I start, is actually the magazine called The Economist. And uh, the eco every is issue of The Economist, which is weekly, has at the beginning a little list of things that happened during the week. And that's, that's where I, I find things out. And that is really helpful because one of the things I will often notice is that I'll have friends who will write to me or you know talk to me and they're really, really upset about something that they've just seen on Twitter and they're just, this is the last straw, they can't take it anymore, they've had it. And then uh, 36 hours later, they discovered that what they had seen on Twitter was a completely misleading uh, uh, account of, of what had actually happened. And that the, the, the facts of the matter actually lend a very different interpretation than the one that they, that they believed in. And, and what's interesting about that is that how, how reluctant they become to back off, how reluctant they become to say, oh, I got that wrong, right? It, they've, they've probably you know, tweeted and posted to Facebook and, and now they're kind of out there as the, the you know, uh, as a supporter of a particular point of view. And then it becomes embarrassing to back down. And so they don't back down, even though if they had had the full information, they never would have taken that stance in the first place. And then 36 hours after that, they don't have to think about it anymore because something else has happened that, out, that outrages them. And, and so now the outrage cycle begins again. How is this being informed? This is not being informed. This is being inflamed. 
And that is not the same thing. And so I think that we, we, we've gotten ourselves into this, this, this habit of believing that being informed is something that you have to do on almost a minute by minute basis, or certainly an hour by hour basis. And in, in fact, all you're doing is getting your, your, your hormones out of order and uh, your, your life is, is becoming increasingly miserable and you're not better informed. You're moving from misinformation to a different set of misin a different misinformation and, and so forth. So if you just pull back from all of that, I mean, it's easy to say pull back, but as we all know in all of us who have children or have had children know that if you're going to tell a child to stop doing something, it really helps if you can give them something else to do instead, right? It just, it's a lot easier if you have an alternative that you can give them. And I want to say that when you pull back from that minute by minute engagement with social media, that reading old books is a good thing to do with your time because it is, I think, that that action is uniquely well-suited to give you both, again, perspective and tranquility, the two things that we really, really need. And then by all means, go back and find out what's going on. You know, keep yourself informed about the election. Make sure that you, but you know, it's not like any of us are in any danger of not knowing what's going on, right? I mean, even if we don't seek it out, it bombards us in a hundred ways. So um, I think, uh, the people who think that you have to be relentlessly focused on the present in order to be informed are mistaken, that they're spending a good bit of time being misinformed and they need to get on a kind of a longer cycle. And filling that space with something else useful, well, I think reading old books is one of those useful things. But Alan, let, let me come back with a question that's sort of related to that. There are so many people right now who are in such a position that they think, whether on the left or the right, this is a crisis moment of the kind we have not seen before, mm -hmm. or maybe it's just a different variety of a crisis we have seen before, whatever the, whatever the uh, argument is, they will say, well, this is, you're, you're kind of making an argument like C.S. Lewis is learning in wartime, you know, that, that despite the fact that we're in a war, we ought still to read books, right. you know, which right. is what he says, and exactly what you're saying. But I've actually had somebody make this argument to me just recently. This time is different. Right. We can't afford civility. We can't afford reflection. We can't afford reading old books. That stuff is it's just fiddling while Rome burns. Mm -hmm. um, how do you answer somebody who comes at you with that sort of argument? Yeah, I, well, one, one of the ways that I answer it is to ask, so what, what are you doing instead? You know, I mean, tweeting, is that it? Is that how you're gonna save the Republic? you know, is through, uh, you know, owning the libs or owning the right wingers or, I mean, is, you know, is that really uh, a substantial contribution? Um, again, uh, you know, I'm not telling people not to vote and not to be informed and not to make intelligent choices. What I'm asking for is intelligent and reflected upon action as opposed to instantaneous uh, reflexive responses. Um, because, you know, this is, it, there is one way to put it is like this. Uh, uh, this is a, a, a metaphor which I've used in other circumstances and other people have used it as well. When you're on an airplane, 
you, you, you're getting the instructions. Um, you know, they tell you that if the oxygen mask drops, then you need to put your oxygen mask on and make sure the oxygen is flowing to you into your lungs before you help somebody else. Um, that that's how you can become useful to someone else is by taking a few moments to make sure that you are cared for. And I would, I would say that stepping away from the agitations of the moment um, and stepping back to think about something else, um, to reflect, to get a little bit of tranquility is exactly like that. It's taking in the oxygen that is going to enable you. It's going to feed your mind. It's going to feed your heart. It's going to make you better able to act uh, in relation to the things that need to be acted upon. So my view is the more urgent the situation the more necessary it is to take the time away from the stimulations of the moment uh, because you've got to give yourself that oxygen and you're not going to get it on, you're not going to get it on Twitter and Facebook. It's um, you know, that's not oxygen that you're getting there. It's a completely different gas. <laughs> you're also not calling for on a sort of um, distraction, you know, and this is another, Right. Another way, like the, the tranquility that you're talking about is actually a hard-won tranquility. It's yeah. not, um, you know, you deserve a break, go binge a new Netflix show, or, or even, you know, go take a vacation and don't bring your phone or whatever. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, if it's self-help, which I thought was a very interesting sort of pitch for this, right. this project, it's, it's hard-won. You know, the, the sort of metaphors you use of sifting, of continuing sticking with um this isn't a sort of light distraction mm -hmm. from the moment or an escapism mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. but that also i mean that sort of leads me into this question of you know how do you pitch it it's it's not it it might be sort of a frustrating project to start um it's it's not going to be maybe gratifying um mm -hmm. in the same way that um you can imagine some other distractions from from all the noise would be and i mean other than sort of come take a class or you know um or here's a book recommendation what do you say to the, mm -hmm. the people that are intrigued but won't won't get a sort of quick fix yeah i think that that first of all you don't want the fix to be too quick because if it's too quick then you don't get the tranquility you know uh, that helps to get away from it but uh, I was, uh, you know, so I was just teaching um, in, in my class uh, or one of my classes over the last few days, I was teaching Edmund Burke's um, uh, Reflections on the Revolution in France. And that was something that has, that's a book that has nothing to do in any formal or clear way with what's going on uh, in our moment. But again and again and again, I found that Burke's response to the activists and the revolutionaries of his own time had all sorts of fascinating connections to the activism and the revolutionary thought of our own, of, of, of our moment. It wasn't the same, 
but what but it was continually giving me new ways to think about what's going on in our moment i was i didn't go to it looking for a view of our moment I, I, I went to it to try to understand Burke so that I could teach him to my students. But I found again and again that, oh, this is actually very relevant, but it's not directly applicable. But the fact that it's different is part of what makes it interesting. Um, and that sort of tension between sameness and difference is where most of the interest of the past lies. In much the same way that, that most of the interest in other cultures lies there, right? I mean, you don't want, you can't connect with another culture if it's radically alien to you. Uh, but there's really no point in connecting to it if it's exactly the same as your culture. It's in those, that, that tension or that flickering back and forth between sameness and difference that you not only come to understand the past, but you come to understand your own time as well. Or if you're thinking about it geographically, it's by engaging in, in an interaction with another culture that you come to understand it better, but you also come to understand your own culture better because you see that certain things that you had always taken for granted are not necessarily taken for granted uh, elsewhere. This is why um, in that famous L.P. Hartley line, uh, the, the past is another country, they do things differently there. Um, and so geographical, uh, geographical connection can help you in much the same way. But geographical, you know, going to other parts of the world is not something that's available to too many of us right now, right? We're kind of stuck at home. And, but the books are there, right? So the books that would enable us to engage with another culture, the other culture of the past, uh, that's always, uh, uh, those are always available to us. And that's going to give us levels of understanding that we simply can't get when all we do is interact with people of our place and our moment. You know, Alan, as you're talking about um, reading Burke in light of today, it does seem to me, though, that that's an, that's an instance of you navigating between the two extremes you describe in your book. Uh, let, let me just talk about that first. The, the red pill Stoics mm -hmm. uh, and then the Donna Zuckerberg um, mm -hmm. progressive Stoics. I mean, it, to, it, to me in that illustration, you're using, um, you're saying those people are using Stoicism right. for their own contemporary purposes and they are opposite. And isn't that amazing? But it's almost as if the only way to, <laughs> to properly understand Stoicism or Burke or anybody else is to go back and say, I'm not reading this with an eye to my own political uh, situation or my own practical right. desires and aversions. I, I just want to understand it for its own sake. Yep. That's a very hard thing to get people to, to recognize, uh, to, to do and to recognize the value of. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, it is, it is hard and you almost have to kind of play a little bit of a mental trick on yourself in order to be able to, to do it properly. Right. But I think, I think the, the way that you can do it, I, I go into reading works of the past expecting to learn something that is re relevant to my own moment and my own situation. But I, I don't know what that's going to be. Um, and, and sometimes it's the books that I didn't think would have any connection to my, to my life that, in my experience, that have illuminated something that I, I didn't even know I needed to have illuminated. Um, and I think that, you know, the, the, 
when when you go to the past, but you go to the past only in order to reinforce something you already hold and you already believe, then why why do it? What's the point in that case, right? I mean, if you if 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 there's no possibility of encountering the works of the past in such a way that they change you, then you might as well just then then go ahead and do Twitter or or maybe better TikTok. Uh, you know, just at least it'll be less contentious. Um, and I think, uh, you know, that's, that's sort of what I felt about both the Red Pill Stoics and uh, Donna Zuckerberg is that it was, it was only evaluating these writers from the past insofar as they can buttress what it is that I believe, or in some cases, you can say, ah, you know, here's where they were clearly wrong. Um, here's where they got it wrong. But the, 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 the most interesting encounters with the past, it seems to me, are the ones where they, they're not even asking the questions that you ask. They're not even thinking about the topics that you're thinking about. Those are the really fascinating moments, right? When you just realize that their whole outlook on the world is is so different than than yours, that that's where the the fascination comes in. And then, I mean, that's not the only way it can go. It can go other ways as well. One of my favorite stories that I tell in the book is from one of my very very favorite novels, which I, I could not recommend uh, too highly. It's Anita Desai's uh, novel, Clear Light of Day. She's an Indian writer and wrote the book and published it in 1982. And there's, there's a moment there where there's this middle-aged Indian woman from a Hindu family in Delhi whose family has been broken apart to some considerable extent by the partition of India um, into you know, first East and West Pakistan and then Pakistan and Bangladesh. And her brother has actually become a Muslim. And that was, again, devastating to the family in any number of ways. And she's got her little pile of Indian history books because she's a teacher. And one of them is the life of Aurangzeb, who was one of the, uh, was the greatest of the Mughal emperors of, of, of India, and therefore Muslim. And, and, and she reads a letter that Aurangzeb writes to one of his oldest friends when, he's a, when he is an elderly man and he's nearing death. And he says, it's so strange to me that I came into this world so perfectly innocent, but I leave it bearing this stupendous caravan of sin. And, and the woman reading it, it it just strikes her right at her heart, right? And, the and this is not only somebody who's sort of reaching out to her across 300 years of history, but this is also, she's a Hindu woman, he's a Muslim emperor. He, her brother went over to that side and broke the family. She has every reason to associate Aurangzeb with oppression and hostility and violence and cruelty, but instead, the words that he speaks about his own experience are so heartfelt that they go right to her heart. She wasn't looking for it. She didn't think it was coming. And that's one of the things that makes it more powerful, right? You, if you don't know that it's coming, you can't prepare yourself against it.
Mm. Uh, and that's one of the most wonderful things about reading the old books, the way that they catch you unawares. Um, and you have to be willing to sort of open your mind and open your heart enough to be vulnerable to that. But if you're not, if you're not willing to open your mind and heart to be vulnerable to that, then I, I don't see the point in reading the works of the past then if, in that particular case. Why, why bother? It's not worth it. Hmm. That's really good. I love that. Yeah, that, that example from, from the book really stood out. Um, I, I have a question, Alan, about this idea of temporal bandwidth. This seems to be sort of one of the, the sort of leading ideas, right, in the mm -hmm. book is that our capacity, our personal density, I think you say, is, is directly related to how much we don't just inhabit a moment, but, but live in the past and even the future. Um, and there's a, there's a sense in which... Um, you know, the, the sort of tradition of contemplation calls us to be particularly attentive to the moment. But that mm -hmm. doesn't seem, as I was thinking about it, that doesn't seem like a contradiction to what right. you're calling for. Right. Um, that, that temp, you know, temporal um, uh, being really steeped in mm -hmm. questions from days long ago, not just being mm -hmm. focused in the moment might actually make us more able to attend to right. to be truly present. Right. Um, so I'm just wondering if you can say a little bit more about that concept yeah. and and yeah. what it you know sort of does for our our attention or even our contemplation. Yeah, I mean this is where the book the the entire idea of the book got started. I was reading Thomas Pynchon's novel Gravity's Rainbow, which is a truly great novel, but I'm not recommending that anyone read it. It's a 800 pages of extraordinary difficulty. But there's a character in there named Kurt Mondalgan. He's an engineer and he, uh, he coins Mondalgan's law and Mondalgan's law is uh, personal density is proportionate to temporal bandwidth. And, and, and what he means by that is this, that the bigger your now is, the larger your now is, the more dense you become as a person. And I think that maybe the best way to understand that is in light of St. Paul's warnings against those who are blown about by every wind of doctrine, right? And, and, and you, 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 you get blown about by every wind of doctrine when you don't have any personal density. You don't have, you don't have anything to keep you in place. You don't have an anchor you don't have ballast. Instead, whatever wind of doctrine happens to blow up, that's, that's where you go. And I'm thinking, here's, here's an example of that. And here's an example of, I think, how, it can, how it, it can manifest itself in the church, right? I remember um, uh, maybe a year and a half ago, um, reading several, um, pastors, Christian pastors who said to other pastors, if you're not preaching about what's happening at the border, at the Mexican border right now, you are not doing your job faithfully. Would that still be true now? I mean, it's not like the crisis at the border has been resolved. It is a little bit less intense than it was, but it's not as though this problem has been fixed, you know? Um, 
but, but I don't think you'll hear people saying that now. I think you'll hear those same people saying that if you're not preaching about racism in America right now, then you're not doing your job. And then maybe if you go back three years, they, those very same people might have been saying, if you're not preaching about the Me Too movement, you're not doing your job. So here we have this, this people's attention being dominated by whatever happens to be dominating media attention at any given moment. And if that's the case, you're not, you're, you have no chance of developing your own agenda for what is absolutely central. If for, and, and it actually won't let you uh, make a meaningful attempt to solve the problems that you have discerned because you've hardly started thinking about one problem before another one has become the most prominent one and now you're thinking about that. So, you know, this, the, the, and this is why, you know, I, I, I think that there is, there's so much value to these people whose causes, whatever they are, are the same now that they were five years ago, right? <laughs> because if your causes are the same now as they were five years ago, there's a chance that over those five years, you've made some progress in, in addressing something that you believe to be uh, an injustice or a cause of, of suffering. And, and, and to have that kind of stability of commitment, that stability of, uh, you know, a passion, but a stable and continuing passion for something, right? You can only do that if you have a personal density. And that personal density, Mondaugan says, comes from having a much larger, um, your temporal bandwidth has to be wide enough that you can just take in a lot more information. And then that, that's, that gets us back to the question of, of you know, a perspectival uh, uh, projection as opposed to an orthographic uh, projection. You start getting the perspective that allows you to see what the value uh, is of a particular cause, what the challenges are of a particular cause. And this is, I mean, think about, think about for instance, you know, William Wilberforce, right? A lot of, a lot of issues came to the fore and then, and then receded and then came to the fore and then receded during his career. But, you know, for decades and decades, he focused on this one thing, ending the slave trade in, in England. And, and, and he didn't allow himself to be distracted from that, even when he had lots of people telling him, well, yes, I mean, that, that matters, but it doesn't matter as much as this thing that's happening right now. And, and how did he get that kind of stability? In part, through having temporal bandwidth, through understanding not only how long the slave trade had been going on and what its, what its, uh, its, its causes and its results had been, but also meditating on what scripture has to say about conditions of enslavement, right? I mean, his, his understanding of the, of the Exodus narrative was absolutely fundamental to his lifelong commitment to the ending of the slave trade. So that, how do you get that kind of consistency of vision and consistency of purpose? Mondalgan's law says that temporal bandwidth is really essential to that. And it might not be the only way, but it is certainly, I think, a time-tested and reliable way. And if you don't have that, 
then you're going to be in a situation where the thing that you think is the most important thing in the world right now, you will no longer be thinking about in six months at all. And I don't see any circumstances in which that is healthy, uh, either for an individual or for society at large. Well, if it's all right, I'd like to ask one last question before we uh, open yeah, it please. up. It, it does seem to me that what you're describing is, is super important, not just for a few people, but for many. And as I read your book, I thought, okay, what, I was inclined to agree heartily with almost all of it, but I thought, well, what would a critic say? And there's a chapter where you say, and it's actually in the temporal bandwidth chapter, you say you're probably writing for the 2% of the population, mm -hmm. which at least you didn't choose a 1% because that would have yeah, been right. <laughs> 2%. Um, given that though, do you think there's a way, I mean, how do you express these, can you express the ideas you're trying to put forth in the book to more than 2%? Is there a way to, to, to broaden them out and to, to bring them to people who are not already inclined to want to read old books? Well, I, I think, the thing that, the thing that makes it hard is how few people read books at all. You know, I, I mean, um, and, and in many cases, very intelligent people, you know, but it's just reading books is not something that they do. Um, and yet I, I'm not sure that there is, I, I, at least I don't know of a, um, an, an equally um, useful and appropriate way to acquire the kind of temporal bandwidth that I'm talking about that does not involve reading. Um, I mean, you know, you could watch historical documentaries or things like that, but you don't in that way get the kind of access to how people thought in the past and how they experienced the world that you, that you get from the reading. So, you know, my, my, my hope would be that, you know, well, let me, let me say one other thing about this, right? When I, when, uh, when How to Think came out, I got a really nice, um, uh, David Brooks wrote a really nice column about it, and that gave the sales uh, a, a nice boost, and I was really grateful for that. And then a few months later, uh, Farid Zakaria uh, on, from CNN um, named it his book of the week and said some nice things about it. And the sales just shot through the roof, you know. And it was just one of those things where I realized that the the reach of the New York Times is tiny in comparison to the reach of CNN. Tiny, I mean, by, by a factor of fifty. Um, and that was—I I just didn't expect that. I mean, I, of course, I know more people watch TV than read newspapers, but I. I just didn't expect the difference to be that massively great, but it really, really is. And so I'm already just by, just by saying, just by addressing, just by writing a book, I've got a small audience, right? And then, uh, and then that audience is probably going to be made up of people who mostly read contemporary things. And so I've got to try to, you know, make that case to them. But the hope is that, you know, you want, if, if, if one person who reads this book can convince two other people to read it, uh, or not even to read the book, it actually doesn't matter so much whether they read my book. If one person reads this book and then convinces two other people to read old books, 
right? Then that's a win, right? That's a win already. That's two people who wouldn't be thinking along these lines. And so you, you have to think about incremental changes. But, you know, if the incremental changes go long enough, uh, thanks to uh, exponential progression, which we've probably learned more about than we wanted to know about since, since COVID hit, it can really make a difference. You can, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a famous um, story, um, a, a little myth about the, the man who invented chess that the emperor of India said, asked him what he wanted and he said, I just want you to put one grain of rice on the one square of the chessboard and then two the next day and then in the next square and then four on the square after that and and so on doubling with each square and the emperor said sure of course happy to do that not realizing that there was not enough rice in india to to uh cover the 64 uh, squares of the chessboard. That's how exponential um, progression works. And while that's a terrifying thing when you're fighting uh, an epidemic disease, it can be an encouraging thing when you're thinking about writing books, right? <laughs> because you don't have to have a big audience at first. You can, you know, you, you can hope that that one of your readers will convince two people. And then those two, maybe if each of them convinces two people, we can get somewhere, we can get somewhere. So um, the, 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 books, the book is going to reach the 2% at best because of how few people read books. But that doesn't mean that there, there isn't the possibility for uh, the good news spreading, uh, the good news of old books. That's a perfect segue to Alan announcing that he's going to start a TikTok uh, account. And <laughs> yeah. Doing some, some dances for all of us to, uh, to spread the yeah. word. Yeah, yeah. Very old dances. Very old dances. That's the key. I'll be doing, you know, gavots and things like oh, that. Oh, great. <laughs> let's, let's grab a couple questions. So there's a few that have circled around this sort of question of how old is an old book? How old mm -hmm. is, is helpful in the way? And then related sort of what's the balance between old and new? And I mean, you, you definitely engage with contemporary authors all throughout the book. So I don't think mm -hmm. anybody could accuse you of, of, of not valuing that, but is there a balance um, that you think we should try to aim for between old and new? No, I really don't. I think, I think um, and this is where I, this book is in a bit of tension with um, my earlier book, The Pleasures of Reading in an Age of Distraction, where I emphasize so much reading at whim, you know, and, um, and so when I say read old books, I'm not quite following my earlier prescription. Um, but I, I, I think if you start thinking about it in terms of um, proportion and balance, um, I, that, I don't think that's going to help you um, uh, you know, I think it's going to turn this kind of reading into a mechanical sort of duty rather than the opportunity for exploration. So I, I think almost any, I mean, first of all, I think if you're just reading a book, you're already getting yourself out of the social media flow. Any book at all is already getting you out of the social media flow. So there's a win that, that you know, that you've already, you're already ahead of the game in that regard. Um, and then, uh, 
but one of the things that I think is that if you read older books, let's say you only read a book that's, that's, you know, 60 or 70 years old. Let's say you read the Lord of the Rings, right? One of the things that you can do when you read the Lord of the Rings is to ask yourself, what did Tolkien read? Uh, what formed him? Um, anytime you read an older book, you will often find references to still older books because uh, we haven't figured out yet how to make references to future books. Uh, and, and that can then be a, a, a key to something that would lead you farther back, uh, going upstream is what, uh, is what I call it. On the other hand, it might be that you're reading a book, you know, uh, if you read Clear Light of Day, um, in this marvelous story of how this family was uh, uh, affected by the partition of India, that might lead you to be more interested in things that are going on in India now. It might be, it might lead you into Indian history. It might lead you anywhere. Um, you know, follow your whim in that case. You know, follow these paths. Uh, see where they go. Um, they may, uh, you may find yourself very surprised by what you end up reading. And I think that kind of unplanned, uh, you know, almost intuitive. Uh, following of your nose is the is a much better guide to good reading than having a kind of a, a, a strict ration of old books to new ones. C.S. Lewis used to say, read three old books for every one new book you read. And that's, that's, that's pretty good advice, I think, but I don't think you should take that too literally. Mm -hmm. That's great. Um, we've got a question here I'd be curious to hear um, maybe both of you on as teachers um, from Jessica Hooten Wilson. Um, when you're teaching- Hi, Jessica. Um, how much time do you spend dismantling the character of writers that we love, Shakespeare, Chesterton, Flannery O'Connor, versus converting students to these writers? We don't want to paint over blind spots where we're already up against a hurdle with non-readers and skeptical students. Elizabeth, do you want to try that one first? Well, you know, immediately I would I would say um, I tend to not inquire into the character of the writer until we've made it at least through the whole book, and and then and then maybe it's it's a time to do it. I mean, students are there's enough to do uh, in terms of just getting to the material that's that's in the book without necessarily having to to take up these issues. On the other hand, I say that, and of course, when you read Plato or Aristotle, you know you've got to talk about how did how did Aristotle view slavery, and how did was he you know did he was he a sexist, and so so on these sorts of um, objections. But Alan actually talks about this really nicely in, in the book, and says, look, you know, we we can neither whitewash the authors nor can we um, say uh, you know everything they said was wrong. He's trying to, and I, this is I suppose what I would do, Jessica, and I'm sure it's what you do too, is to say, well, there's there's a there's a kernel of goodness there that is probably worth inquiring into, and can we can we sort of thread the needle or, or you know make a path between those ex the extremes of just sort of dismissal on the one hand, and uh, and and praise and adulation on the other. So you know how you do that I, I don't know and it depends on the author as you know very well. Uh, Alan, you want to jump in there? Yeah, I mean that's. Uh, it's one of the things I talk about in the book is this idea, which I, I got from a, a blogger um, about, which I find very useful, the distinction between positive and negative selection. Um, that, uh, you know, w w for instance, when, when, when um, uh, admissions offices for colleges and universities are sifting through all the applicants, 
they, they basically practice a kind of a negative selection. That is, is there anything wrong here? If there's anything wrong, then we can rule this person out and we don't have to consider their, their candidacy anymore. And, and the blogger's point was that this, is a, this can actually be costly at times. Sometimes there may be a candidate that's got something wrong with her. She's got some you know, bad grades or bad test scores or something else, but you, you don't wanna let that blind you to extraordinary strengths uh, that this person has, special gifts that might not be represented in your population of students. And so, this is, uh, and, and so maybe there are times when the practice of negative selection, that is ruling people out on the basis of something that's bad, needs to be supplanted by a principle of positive selection. And when I'm teaching books and uh, essays, articles, whatever, I invariably practice positive selection. I, uh, that's where we start. And, and that's what we build on. And then it's only after we have extracted all the positive value that we can from what we're reading that we might get around to saying, okay, where does this go wrong? Where does this, you know, or what, what's the, so uh, I've mentioned teaching Burke, right? That I, I really worked hard to make sure my students understood why Burke was making the arguments that he was making, where he was coming from, before we got around to the passage that is his kind of panegyric to Marie Antoinette, you know, and the glories of Marie Antoinette, you know, which I think is a kind of ridiculous passage. But if I had gone straight to that and started talking about how ridiculous it is, would I have ever been able to get them to take seriously the things in his argument that they really do need to take seriously? And not even necessarily because I agree with those arguments, but because they're enormous. Burke's way of thinking about politics is just so different than all of the previous political philosophers. And, and he really calls into question our assumptions about what politics is. I needed to get my students to, to meet that challenge and to recognize it as an intellectually serious and legitimate challenge. And if I had gone to the, you know, if I'd started talking about what's wrong with Burke, right away, I don't think we ever would have gotten around to that. They would have already had reason to dismiss him. Um, and I really try to keep my students from coming to that conclusion prematurely. Um, so even in writers that I don't like, even with ideas that, you know, when I used to teach for, for decades, I taught literary theory classes. And a lot of the work of contemporary literary theory, I believe to be unhelpful at best and sometimes actually destructive. Uh, but I, we would get well, we would get very deep into those classes before my students knew that I thought that way. Mm. Eventually I would make it clear to them, but not until they had done some really hard work to try to appropriate and to grasp the legitimate insights that came from those, those works. Yeah, and, and let me just follow up and say, um, for as an example of what I think is the the faulty sort of negative selection uh, tendency of, of many people in the present day, there's a whole movement afoot to, to sort of get rid of certain children's books. Uh, a lot of them actually, Pippi Longstocking, Peter Pan. Uh, the Little House whole, on the Prairie. Yeah, Little House on the Prairie, that's very bad. Uh, even Charlie the Chocolate Factory, all this stuff, because there are some things in there that contemporary people find unsavory, but if we were to do that, and I know Jessica, you're, this is not, not you in the least, we would have nothing for children to read from the age of 10 to about 14. 
there would be nothing left. In, in terms of plastics, you would only have the, the modern things that are sanitized. Mm -hmm. so I think yeah. it's always better to be charitable with the works. And then, you know, if you have to take those things up, you do. Yeah. I'm reminded of the sort of leading metaphor here of breaking bread, right? A sort of almost communion that um, I think you suggest just by the title and the way you sort of frame the book, Alan, that it's worth sort of pulling up a chair at the table um, you can leave, right? It's not hard to leave with a dead conversation partner, um, but but sort of sitting at the table, sticking with it, um, and and there will be, of course, some some give and take and some tension there, maybe like all good uh, tables eventually. But yep. but the yep. metaphor itself, I think, suggests that sort of being willing to be present for long enough to see where we go together. Right. And this whole, so this, this is one of my two books, uh, How to Think being the other one that I wrote very explicitly as a citizen. That is, I, I'm thinking, uh, I'm writing as an American for my fellow Americans and for people in the other Western democracies in some cases who, who, who might be facing some of the same troubles. Um, and so in these books, I don't, uh, I, I don't speak specifically as a Christian, but I always think specifically as a Christian. And, um, um, you know, uh, like, like St. Paul, I try to be all things to all people and, and at times uh, maybe try to, to be reticent about some of my convictions. And I don't feel too bad about that because I'm very clear about those convictions in, in many of the other things uh, that I write. But that the, the, the chapter of the book that has the most subterranean theology in it is the chapter called Table Fellowship, um, because that is something, first of all, that we feel um, with, with uh, a kind of an instinctive power, right? That this is, this is why, you know, this is why the Thanksgiving dinners that people have with family members that they don't agree with politically are so vexed and so fraught because there is, there is something distinctive and special about sitting down at a table with someone and sharing a meal with them. Um, but as a Christian, what I always find myself thinking is what Jesus did when he met Zacchaeus, who was a pretty nasty piece of work in any number of ways. And, 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 and Jesus's response to him was Zacchaeus, I'm eating dinner at your house tonight. <laughs> he invited himself to have table fellowship with this grossly sinful person. Um, and that's, a you know, I, underlying that whole chapter on table fellowship is my sense that uh, Jesus explicitly and intentionally, consciously and purposefully um, breaks the usual rule, rules of, of table fellowship in, in, in favor of, of a more generous disposition. Doesn't mean that he doesn't tell Zacchaeus what he does wrong. It doesn't mean that he does not have uh, words of warning and words of justice, but it means that Sometimes the table fellowship comes first and the words of correction or justice uh, or ac accusation even come later. Um, and that's something that I, have in, I had in mind throughout the writing of this book. That's great. That seems like a great note to end on for now. 
Um, thanks again, Alan. It's an amazing book. If you haven't picked up a copy, your local bookstore has it or can get it. And um, it really is a, uh, a bread breaking in itself. Um, introduce you to many other books and authors you'll want to read. Thanks again to the sponsorship generosity of Baylor and Washington, Baylor's Honors College. Um, I invite you to um, check out Alan's website, aj.org, A-Y-J-A-Y. Um, you can read what he's writing on his microblog. You can subscribe to his weekly uh, email newsletter, which is fantastic. Um, and, uh, and much more on his website. And if you'd like to learn more about Brazos Fellows, we invite you to go to brazosfellows.com. You can find links to our blog there, read reflections from uh, our fellows and our community of study here in Waco. Uh, and thanks to all who uh, tuned in. It was great to uh, share this conversation with you, to get your questions. Um, it's been a feast. Thanks to all. Mm -hmm.